Church. Great to have you guys here. I do want to say thanks so much to Karen and Heather for uh, sharing your hearts this morning and your words and vulnerability. Hey, man, that's that's what it's all about. Being honest and being real, but then being uh, celebratory and rejoicing in God's grace, which is only the way we'll have uh, real lasting change. To be vulnerable like that, to be able to talk about current and past, and but still walk away rejoicing. It's the only it's the only chance we have. And it's the only thing we can, that actually does that for us. Uh, we have been going to the book of Acts, and I would invite you to turn over to Acts chapter four as we continue our study on uh, living life together and looking at the early church and all that happened with them and what we can glean, what we can learn and apply in our lives today. The title of my lesson this morning is No Other Way. And this is one of the most uh, one of the most famous texts here where we see with Peter had just preached his second ter- a sermon on the Temple Mount, and uh, energy is electrically uh, charged. I mean, people are, uh, at this point, we see that the number of believers will, will up in the range of 5,000, and we know that often it was just men that were added to that number. So we're looking at 10,000, really, if all things are equal, uh, both men and women coming to a place of belief, even though the powers that be at this time, the Sanhedrin and the 70 elders that make up that body, sent all their representatives to literally interrupt Peter's sermon here. Uh, and the captain of the guard, which is kind of like second in command, it'd be like the vice president, if you will, the fellow right below the high priest. He's the one that comes and actually initiates this disturbance. And the Sadducees, who you'll see in this, this text here, are kind of like the power brokers. They've got the most to, lo- to lose in, in this group. And uh, we'll see the high priest is there, and he's the one who's kind of, uh, his family, a bunch of nepotism actually, uh, one family member to the next gets the high priest's command. And we see here that Peter is, uh, is questioned but is radically different. And the message he says, where he feels, you know, I got a sermon coming on, he preaches it and he brings it. And uh, it's, it's phenomenal. So again, uh, no other way is the title. I've got just two, uh, two ideas. Uh, boldly know and boldly go. Boldly know and boldly go. And let's read together here in verse one. I can't promise you I'm not gonna stop a few times just to interject some cool uh, teaching along the way. Amen, so uh, it better be cool. Verse 1, it says, While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the commander of the temple guard, I'm reading out of the NET, and the Sadducees came up to them, angry, because they were teaching the people and announcing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. And I'm going to stop here. It was only 100 days ago where the Sanhedrin, this same group of leaders, did the exact same thing to Jesus. They interrupted him, it was late, and because it was night, they put Jesus away uh, for conveniently a trial in the morning. So the same thing is happening here to Peter. But despite this interruption, it says in verse 4, many of those who had listened to the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So let's just roll with 10,000, all right, or 7,500. There's some some guys going stag to to this sermon. Which is okay. But the truth is here, and at this moment, a hundred days ago, this very Peter, who was questioned, not by the second in command, but literally the lowest status of society, a young slave girl. Like that's the lowest of the low at that time. And the most the least intimidating scenario, they're outside the courtyard, everyone's just kind of you know letting loose a little bit, trying to relax, trying to get warm. And it's the same Peter 
who question on kind of just a whim, like, hey, you have an accent like a Galilean. There's no one else listening, and he crumbles three times. Crumbles, I don't know this man, he calls down curses on himself. And here in this, the image that I want to paint in your mind is that these men, this Sanhedrin, this commander of the temple, the guard, the Sadducees, they, when they move about in society, whenever they are questioning a subject, they, they set themselves up in a semicircle. So you got the, the, the second in command there, the captain's guard, and then all of his cronies behind him. Like, you know, the, the, the leader of the gang steps in front, and then all the hype guys are in the back, you know? Like we see on Facebook or Instagram, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, that's what's happening. So Peter, in contrast, crumbling, crumbling to, the little, to a little girl where no one else is listening, and now here he's got the authorities of authorities in a semicircle, a very intimidating situation, and we see what he does. Pretty amazing. And uh, not only that, scribes. So just, just to paint this picture, there's two scribes, and they're writing everything down that you say. And one scribe is, is completely up for your acquittal. He writes down everything favorable that could get you off the hook. The other scribe's job is just to pen all the things that could get you busted. So in this, in this band of leadership, imagine someone writing down every word you say. You know, we have that phrase, everything you say, you know, the, you know your Miranda rights, anything you say can be used against you in the court of law, da, 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 all that kind of stuff. We have that, and maybe we got it from them. I don't know. But nonetheless, these guys are, just imagine, like, looking at you like, oh, mm. and they can't help themselves but to maybe smirk about something like, kind of like your teacher back in the day, like, mm, you know, the substitute teacher wrote your name down like oh no did she write my name that kind of stuff and, and, and that would change us like a moment if we thought the sub was going to get us in trouble at least that did for me maybe you guys were a bit more hardcore uh, but nonetheless that's all that's happening here everything that he said was being recorded for either doom or deliverance and here he goes after he's in the next day this trial happens their rulers verse 5 elders and experts in the law came together in jerusalem Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, John, Alexander, those are all his boys. That's the family. That's the family line of future high priests. And others who were members of the high priest's family. After making Peter and John stand in their midst, they began to inquire. By what power or by what name did you do this? Again, before, crumbled. Now, Jesus says, or Peter says rather, fill with the Holy Spirit replies rulers of the people and elders if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man by what means this man was healed let it be known to all of you and to all the people of israel but by the name of jesus christ the nazarene from whom you crucified whom god raised from the dead this man stands before you healthy this same man this same man who buckled by the servant girl is now preaching boldly and one difference. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. That makes all the difference. And he says, by what power? And I imagine him and John, Peter looking at Peter and John looking at each other, and they kind of look at each other, and Peter kind of raises his eyebrows like, I got this. <laughs> like, I feel a sermon coming on. And John's like, Go, go. Let's get it. Bring it. And the Holy Spirit is ready to bring it. And what better place than this? 
what better place than right here with the leaders who have, have set who have set the, the spiritual agenda for years, who have become the authority, who have literally choice selected texts to to dictate trajectory and, and direction for their authority to continue to the next generation. What better place? And Peter gives John the wink and John gives him the head nod. And then Peter says this, then know this. And this is a key word. It's called, in the original language there in Aramaic, which means basically, this is the most important thing. I'm about to drop the mic on you guys. Like this is something you gotta pay attention to. This is a, a very well-known rhetorical device. This is meant to stop everybody in their tracks. I don't know if, uh, if Bill Bridge were here and he just yelled, he's not here, he's out of town today. But if Bill in his Pittsburgh accent yelled, yo, we, we'd all be like, what's, what's happening? You know, if, or something, or a New Yorker or a Boston accent, you know, just kind of yelled something that culturally was like, oh, okay, I gotta, I gotta stop and look. That's this rhetorical device. Uh, I'd say the French, but the, the accent goes up and just kind of dismiss that normally. Anyway. German speaker up here. Anyway, but this is the most important thing to hear. And he's saying, pay attention. And Peter quotes Psalm 118. He says there in verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders that has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. And Peter quotes there in Psalm 18, but he adds something. He had something in the text, and it's literally those two words, by you. He says, the stone, this cornerstone in which you poured your contempt, you rejected this stone. What's the big idea? The cornerstone is emblematic. It's the thing in which you build your entire understanding of life upon. It's the paradigming shift, shifting truth from which all understanding comes from. In architecture, if Dave Young was up here, he'd be able to tell us all about the cornerstone. It's the stone you set first. And if that stone is plumb and level, then you build off of that stone. If that stone's off, your whole building is off. If that stone is, is level but not plumb, then your building is level but not plumb. It's, it's bad news. It is the stone you start everything off of. So G Peter is saying here, this stone in which we are meant to orient our entire lives, both mind, heart, and soul, you killed him. You killed him. You poured your contempt on this stone. And at this point, you gotta see this beautiful imagery that they had, the backdrop. You know, we've got our cars, but Peter had the temple. The very temple that Jesus says, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days, referring to his body. The cornerstone, the messianic prophecy in Psalm 18, referring to Jesus as the cornerstone, that's their backdrop. And Peter says, you're working so hard to keep this temple, but the real temple and the real cornerstone by which we all see God, you rejected him. And it's this cornerstone in which we must all reorient our lives. And I appreciate so much what Heather and, and Karen said. That's a great sermon right there about how that reorients everything, how that reorients even shame and guilt, how that reorients us the way we see difficulty, the way we see our challenges, it reorients the, the what and the why and why we care about it, right? 
from people to God. And it's over and over again, not just once when we become disciples, but it's that reorienting factor every day as to why we do what we do and why do we care about what we care about and what really matters. So again, sisters, I appreciate you guys tremendously for that. And this cornerstone, what Peter is now preaching, is that this is about to rearrange everything you've got going on, if you let it. So that temple in view, he goes on and says that, adds that by you, and it's, par it's, it's emblematic. And for us, we'd, be, we'd do well to recognize that too. So again, this cornerstone rearranges everything you know about God, everything you know about the temple, everything you know about your position, everything you know about everything else. And the truth is, everything that you know is going to be upended. Everything you know is going to be flipped on its head. And he makes this case strongly. And then he makes it even more plain, which is kind of the punchline, which we read in verse 12. That name, that cornerstone, there's no other name under heaven given among by which people must be saved. That's our title. There's no other way. I know we all know that up here. But we have a society and a world and a construct that is constantly squeezing that out of us. And it's time for us to recognize the power of the Holy Spirit, recognize God's word and the historical facts that it that actually has, and for us to boldly know and boldly go. And this isn't a hype sermon. This, this is a reorienting sermon, I pray. At least it was for me as I prepared. So nonetheless, salvation is found in no one else. And that, you know, stone is stone, the dropping of the mic, he did that. And if the first century they, did, they fist pumped, I could see Peter and John be like, what you guys got? bring it on what do you got and they were living from what they had learned from Jesus just a hundred days ago Jesus in Luke 21 says but before all this about the ascension they will seize you and persecute you hand you over put you in prison and all, all of this on account of my name but I will give you words that will be irrefutable you know how many of us have been in tough spots where I wouldn't say it's first century uh, persecution, but where you got to answer some questions that are hard, where someone's actually confronted you about your faith. And we've all been in tough spots. We're like, Ooh, I don't want to mess this up. This is an opportunity. What's the scripture? What's the words? I remember as a young college student at Old Dominion, and we would uh, go sharing our faith, and we would go ask people to study the Bible on campus. And uh, we came across a, uh, uh, actually a, a Hasidic Jew, but he was, uh, he was dedicated to uh, or excuse me, a messianic Jew. He was he was there who was in his garb, had had his uh, phylacteries, everything. He kind of looked like a, a first century uh, man of the temple or, or a Pharisee in a sense, without the self-righteousness. He was a really humble guy. But uh, I was a young student. I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go talk to this guy. And man, he shredded me. Like he, he's like, oh, you know, we, we believe in the same Holy Scriptures in the Torah. So he's like, all right. And he sat down and had a Bible study with me. Uh, with the Old Testament and looked at scriptures refuting Jesus being the Messiah but using the Old Testament to do so and I'm like I don't know a couple months old in the faith and I'm just like hey man just give me everything you got I'm just going to write this down because I'm going to go and study this out and then I'll, I'll come back and we'll talk about it so he just but I remember he and my uh, a brother who I was texting about this morning his name is Albert Sanford he was in college with me and he's, he's in Hampton Roads and we were just kind of waxing poetic about that. Like, do you remember that, man? Like, we were just like, 
gobsmacked, our jaws were in the floor, we were insecure, we were like, oh my goodness, oh, what is this, oh, this guy knows the Bible's back and forwards, and why, you know, so, but we went back, and we asked questions, and we studied things out, we looked at early Christian writings, we studied the scriptures, and then we sat down with them, and the beauty of all that was that moment, we were so young in the faith, but every question he had, we had a passage for it. Every scripture he tried to refute, uh, not only the scriptures we studied, but a lot of the ones we never did. And we're like, oh yeah, there's this passage, let's go there. And it was this one moment where we're like, this is awesome, man. Like, where is this coming from? How do we, how do we know that, man? And it was just kind of those moments where this is exactly what Jesus said he would do. You're in a tough spot, I'll give you the words. You're, in a, you're between a rock and a hard place, I got you. It's not about you, it's not your personality, your ego, your bravado, it's not how strong you are, you're a Bible nerd, I got you. And it was that moment where, yeah, we studied things out, but a lot of the stuff we shared with that gentleman that day was stuff that God put on our heart, stuff that he helped us to recall. And it was amazing because normally, if you know me, I don't say the right things a lot. And that never happens to me. I'm often the guy driving home from a meeting like, darn it, why did I say that? I, oh, it comes to me afterwards. Anybody relate? Yeah. If I only said that, it would have been, ah, you kind of kick yourself. But in that moment, man, it never happened. It was awesome. There was another time we went to, uh, to a, another campus ministry group that was doing uh, Back to the Basics. And we were really intrigued. And we were really focusing on uh, kind of working collaboratively to serve and work together with a lot of the other campus ministry groups. And they were having a Back to the Basics night. So my buddy Albert and I were kind of like Sons of Thunder. He was, he was definitely the spokesperson. He was like Peter, like I got a sermon. And I was like John, like get him, man. And that was, <laughs> that was more my role, like got you. Anyway, we went and uh, the, the gentleman who was leading the group, great guy, we'd played basketball many times. He's an older guy, he's probably in his, his 60s at that point. And uh, you know, we were 19, so we thought he was ancient. But nonetheless, he was sharing some things and we were like, ah, that's not really lining up, man. I don't think that's really, so we respectfully said, hey, we'd love to talk to you about some of the questions we have. And we went into his office and he was a humble guy. And we were talking, but he was asking us questions about our questions. It's kind of like Jesus in that way. Like, I got a question for you. I was like, all right. So anyway, it was not, there was no mean spirit about it. There was, there was a lot of humility, probably more on his part than ours. But his questions, this guy went to seminary, all that kind of stuff. We're just kind of two guys trying to figure things out. It was another scenario where the scriptures were coming to us without much of this like recall. It was just awesome. And uh, he was in a spot where he had gone so many different uh, routes for learning where he was in that spot saying, you know what, you guys have made me think about something I haven't thought about in years. And it wasn't like, yeah, we did it, we got him. We just left that group like, I don't know what's gonna come of that, but wasn't it cool to have the words just given to us in that moment where we could really defend God's word and really help someone and be helped all the same. It was really cool. But those are kind of one-off moments. I mean, that was, I'm sharing from like 20 years ago almost. But for Peter and John and the disciples in the first century, these aren't one-off moments. Like, let me pull back to, to the history of campus ministry to share a story where I was kind of stuck in a hard spot. These guys were living this and ending up in this position over and over and over again because they were furthering the name of Christ in boldness. And I had to ask myself as I study this, and I ask you all the same as a, as a family, why is that? Where they found themselves in hard spots all the time, but you and I don't. Now, I'm not saying we go look for it, but in the first century when Christians got together, you know what the Bible says happened? Riots. Today, 
When Christians get together, there's a conference. There's a conference. Now again, this isn't about us going to find trouble. But there's something about our hearts where, you know what? Is there that boldness? Is there that quickness to trust that God's going to give you the word to say? Is there uh, an appeasement that's settled over the church of Christ? I don't know. But next week's lesson, we'll talk about how it all began and how they saw Peter and John's boldness, and then they boldly go. If you, if you have notes out there, get ready. I got like seven scriptures to scribble down for you guys. You ready? This is Acts 4.31. It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke of the word of God boldly. In Acts 9... Paul talks about his path in Damascus of preaching fearlessly. In Acts 13, Paul and Silas are denoted there by preaching and answering boldly. Acts 14, verse 3, same thing. Paul and Barnabas refuting the truth boldly, or refuting their claims boldly. And then one of my favorites in Acts 28, 31, when Paul's saying goodbye to the church there, it says about him that he preached with all boldness and without hindrance. If you ever had to leave Roanoke and you had a, like a going away party, that'd be a cool thing to be said about you. Like when you're here in Roanoke, man, I appreciated how you preach with all boldness and without hindrance. Yeah. Or if you're leaving, <laughs> leaving your job, you get a transfer or whatever, like, hey, man, I just appreciate your faith. How you went about it with all boldness and without hindrance. I'm like, amen. That's what they said about Paul. So you want to be able to preach with all boldness. The only way to do that is check yourself at the door. Check your inhibitions. They can't hang around. The Spirit no longer has to filter through my, it, my constraints. It can actually flow through me quite easily. That's my, that's my hope and that's my prayer for all of us. But it's a prayer for us, and it was a prayer for Paul. Ephesians 6, 19, he prays and asks the church in Ephesus to pray for him that whenever he speaks, that he speaks fearlessly, as he should. In Philippians 1, he asked the church in Philippi, please pray that we would all the more proclaim the gospel without fear. We've got to pray for each other to have that type of no constraints, no hindrances for us to be able to, wherever the situation is, that we would be ready to preach and proclaim the love of Christ boldly. Are you with me? So don't walk away. Don't go home uh, a little bit sweatier from being outside. But don't walk away thinking, you know what, i got to have some type of ego, some type of bravado some type of working myself up. You know, I share those two stories when I was 19, but you know the sad truth is, I've got a lot of other stories where I've gone out to share my faith around Roanoke and I get intimidated. I go into the marketplace with the intent on getting a meal and reaching out to the businessmen and women that are just sitting around doing the same thing. And I remember this, this sense of, I don't feel ready. So let me go, you know, spend a little more time in the word. Uh, let me go pray and I find myself walking around the marketplace trying to hype myself up to to love people has anyone been there i'm there more often than i than i am in those 19 year old stories there's probably some like you know some naivete and when i was 19 and that all and all too but but this is a sense of this isn't about working ourselves up like oh let me oh let me squeeze my hands get a little pump go to the gym whatever it is to kind of be this disciple it's praying for each other to have that Holy Spirit be with us Amen. and for us to rely on that. That's, I hope that's pretty straightforward. So, again, Jesus, or excuse me, Peter and John could have done something a bit differently here. They could have tried to go a lot of different ways, soften the blow, build consensus. 
but he goes right for the basic message of all this. And I think it's important for us to recognize what we're teaching and what we're talking about. This isn't some, let me try to soften it up. Let's just do the same thing that Jesus and Peter did. And the basic message was, you killed Jesus. And owning that. And recognizing that. You killed this Jesus. This is how it was done. By the one you killed. He's healed. He's healthy because of Jesus. And you killed him. You, 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 you. The cornerstone. You. The one you scored. You. But guess what? Jesus is ready to give you salvation nonetheless. Yes, you. That's the basic message. You kill Jesus, but he still wants to give you salvation. Yes, even you. And there's no one else that can. But Jesus. Even to me, even to you. You know, what they're hearing is this ultimate message of rescue, of deliverance and salvation. And you got to wonder why these leaders right here aren't saying, yes, hallelujah, this is what we've been waiting for. That they're not celebrating God's plan all coming together perfectly. Why not? Because it's not good news to them. You know why it's not good news? Because they were in charge of superintending the truth for years. And if Jesus is the one that has the truth, they have to give up their power. They have to give up their claim that this life is, is molded and manifested by their own power. And the truth is, for all of us who may look at Jesus at one point suspiciously, or maybe now we question whether or not we want to be disciples of Jesus, it all comes down to this line. Jesus is trying to upstage your authority. He's trying to upstage who you think you are to save you. Not to wag his godly finger at you. He is trying to upstage for your own good. And for these men, that's exactly what Jesus was. But you're trying to take away what I care about most. This cornerstone was being laid to reorient them absolutely. And they didn't want it. That's why I didn't receive it with joy and gladness at first. And why many of us didn't either. Because we knew it was going to cause turmoil in some regard. That it was going to switch things up, shake us loose, make us have to deal. And things might be changed. The way we're seen, the way people know us, the, the warm and fuzzies aren't going to be there. The sense of who you think I am is going to be revealed. The, my own parents thought they had a golden boy. But when I told them what I'd really been up to, I'd never seen my mom cry so much. And I didn't want to see that. I didn't want to cause that, and that wasn't the intent of telling her to make her cry. <laughs> but the truth is, i got to give up the game. I'm reoriented, and now it's not about this, this scene that I've been trying to carry on for years, Mom. This is who I really am, and you deserve to know, but this is who God is, and this is who I am now. And while it was hard, that was a, you know, cutting out so many of the stones I had built on, but now if Jesus was going to be the first one, then i got to give up all these other ways I've built my life. And you had to do the same thing. And if you're wondering, you got to do it. Well, what a gift to have that built. You know, for us, I'm going to try to prepare, equip us here really quickly about what we can do with our boldness and how to really make a stand. You know, today... If you were to preach this message, and the truth is, when Jesus, or I keep saying Jesus because it's so much like him, right? Uh, Peter and John, when they yeah. preach this message, you, know, you might think to yourself for a moment, ah, they didn't really have much to lose. You know, there's kind of a sense of, you know, other gods, whatever. But the truth is, they had more to lose than ever, than us even now. 
you, you may argue. Because the Pax Romana, Jesus, or excuse me, the, the Romans and how they set it all up, it was this great administrative peace, if you know your history. It was basically like tolerance galore. Like, you have your thing, you have your thing, you have your thing, but let's all agree on this, nobody upstages Caesar. Can't say that, but if we all kind of accept that there's different ways of thought, different saviors, to a point, we're good. And we can create this, this, this type of uh, uh, harmony in their minds. But to say that Jesus was who he said he was, upsurp, or usurps the authority of Caesar, and that's ultimately we got Peter killed, and ultimately we got Paul killed, and many others. But today, there's more downside. More downside then than even today. But today, there is downside, right? Anyone ever experienced the, your narrow-minded talk? You've said Jesus is the only way, there's no other way. You're arrogant, you're exclusive, you're triumphalistic. And the truth is, you would be, church, if you're using Jesus' name to somehow enhance your own power, to, uh, to somehow enhance your own prestige, your position, and definitely to sideline those who don't agree with your position. There's been a lot of harm done in the name of Jesus by using Jesus' name to make the church feel better about itself, to sideline those who don't agree, to distance ourselves from community, to actually withhold love and care and service from someone who does not have faith in Christ. And we say that because we don't want to, you know, have them rub off on us. I mean, ew, I've said it, you've said it, and it gives me the eebie-jeebies. So for someone in that moment to say I'm narrow-minded, if I was withholding love, they'd be absolutely right. But that's not what we're claiming here. We're not claiming that, you know what, this is the only way, and therefore we have nothing to do with you. No, this is the only way, and because it's the only way, we're going to love you more than ever. Yeah. Are you with me? Yeah. So authority has shifted, and the truth is, in our world, it's the secularists, it's the relativists, and it's now this act that relative, relativism and relative, relativists at your job and on social media, they're in the part of the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, that's their role. And what they have at stake is this, the temple, not the physical temple, but this temple of, modern, of postmodern thoughts. Uh, ooh, good catch, Landis. In their minds, to be great in their minds, is to maintain peace and prosperity in the approach that they feel is the best way to do so. And the apostles answered, you know what, and they said here in this text, are you upset because we did something kind? Because of kindness we showed and the extent of this kindness that we offered? Is that what's getting you all, you know, all, all ruffled? All, 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 all difficult in your mind? Is that what's happening? And I imagine today, if you're a teen or a preteen or even younger, well, not younger than that, but uh, you know, not old like me, uh, <laughs> you're confronted with this more, more so. That you're this, you're this relativist, you're this narrow-minded person. But the truth is, those who say there's more than one way, they're doing the exact same thing that you're trying to do to them which is to help them to see that there is a way. And to say that you're, you can't say there's a way, and, but there's, a, there's so many different ways, that's my stance. They're taking the same type of authority that you are. Does that make sense? So if people are going to believe in Jesus, it's not going to be the Christianity that you proclaim that's going to offend them. They are going to be offended by the idea that there's this singular thought and that you're not saying all religions are equally valid. That you're not saying... That, uh, that you're the only right one. That if we could just say your, your religion's pretty good, and if we could just say their religion's pretty good, and theirs, and 
The truth is you'll get attacked by saying, you know what, you're not open-minded. If you could be more open-minded like me, uh, we'd be good. And the truth is, it sounds really reasonable. And it sounds really loving to do something like that, doesn't it? And at face value, if we say there's one way and only way, it does sound like we're narrow-minded and bigoted. But what they're asking you to do and to accept is to believe in a Jesus that doesn't exist. To believe in a Jesus that doesn't claim exclusivity. To believe in a Jesus that only preaches kind of love and humility and selflessness, but not that he's the only way. Jesus, if you could just say you're not better than any other teacher, if you could just say that you're not better than Muhammad or uh, Confucius or Gandhi or Buddha, then we're good. But here's the difficulty with that. Even in your heart, you'd like to do that? You'd have to make up a completely new Jesus. That Jesus doesn't exist. There's historical data that says that he wasn't that way. It's a modern convention to create Christianity like that. It's making a God in our own liking and creating an idol that we can worship. But you and I don't have that choice. John 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We know that. And no religious leader, no Gandhi, no Buddha, no Confucius, no Muhammad in all their great ways, none of them ever claimed to say that they were God. Only Jesus did. And if we're going to worship and follow Jesus, we got to recognize that who we worship, <laughs> we can't make him more palatable to the society around us. That's a temptation for sure. sure. Write this down for time's sake. I just looked at the clock. we got to roll. But John 5, verse 19 through 27, for time's sake, he basically says, I'm the son. I have the authority. God's given me that authority. If you listen to my voice, you listen to God. I mean, that's a claim of claims. I'm God. If you hear me, you hear God. If you approve of me, you approve God. And God is happy to give me that authority. Take it or leave it. That's what he says there. And at face value... They hear this, and the original audience is up in arms because he's acquitting himself to God and the ultimate judge. And you may meet people, and I was this, and you may have been this, that loved Jesus. They were convinced of his resurrection, the beauty of his character, the brilliance of his teaching. They wanted to really believe in Jesus, but they wanted to believe in Jesus that society made rather than who God made. That they were kind of accepting of everything. Not tolerant of everything, but accepting of everything. That everything is okay. That Jesus doesn't exist. But that same Jesus who draws a line in the sand says, this is the only way. You know what else he says in Matthew 26? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That Jesus says, says this is the only way, he paved the way. He was willing to actually die for us. And this is the Jesus you also get when you believe he's the only way. He looks at you with love in his eyes. Not just when we're all here worshiping in the sun. He looks at you with loving eyes when you were in the darkest, dankest, deprived moment of your life. The most shameful time is when he looks at you and says, this is when I'm going to shed my blood for you. Here's what's interesting. Last thing. While society says to us, your take on Jesus is narrow and wrong. Your take on Jesus is exclusive. And who are you to say that your spiritual reality is the only way? And they tell you to stop saying that. And you should believe our way. Our view and our view on God and our view on spirituality is the right and only way. And you should believe in it. They are in that moment being just as exclusive. 
they are in that moment in the marketplace, in the, the worlds of academia, or on social media, they're saying the same thing. Abandon your view and take mine. They're trying to evangelize you in just the way you're trying to evangelize them. Amen? You see the irony in that. Yeah. But there are two major differences between that and a disciple of Jesus. Disciple of Jesus or those who aren't, they won't admit that they're trying to actually persuade you. I have no problem admitting to you. I'm trying to persuade you of the truth. I'm trying to help you to see that there is a way where Jesus loves you. I'm not trying to go, you know, use my authority or whatever to kind of, you know, the bait and switch on you. I'm trying to be clear. And we're happy to, rec to recognize something that I think the world is not. We're happy to recognize that in the marketplace of ideas, Jesus will get the last word. Like, we don't have to use our authority to beat you over the head with it. We don't have to use our positions at our workplace to have consequences for you if you don't believe it. We know Jesus will prevail in the end. And we're happy to share what we've heard and experienced. And to not do so would be cowardly and not bold and shirk away from the opportunities people have to believe and know the truth. You know, the world is also willing to do whatever it takes to shut you down, to intimidate you, to give you consequences amongst your peers at your school, teens, or in college, to wield whatever authority they have to shut you down. But what's the problem with saying that Jesus is the only way and we're trying to share this one way? It is a common courtesy to give someone the ultimate love and not withhold that from them. Jesus humbled himself, he became man, and he poured out his blood for us so that we could be forgiven. What's the harm in delivering that message? The problem is, is that not only does he deliver us, he delivers us from self and sin. The cornerstone gets reoriented in our lives when we come to God. When we say all our ways are good, and this way is good, and that way is good, and that way is good, guess what you get to do? You don't have to change. You can be the same. You can do what you want. And you're still a slave to your passions. You're still a slave to your lusts. You're still a love. You're still a slave to your addictions. And we're still in the same cycle of vanity. We've all been there. But Christ actually delivers us from all of that. Jesus and his message does not produce intolerance, church. It does not produce exclusivity in the sense that we don't gather with certain people. Christianity historically is the most inclusive, diverse human community the world has ever seen. Besides public schools, because you're forced to go there, and the military, outside of that, there's nothing like this happening this week. And it's not because we're so great, or we talk to certain people, it's because of who Jesus is and who and what his message is. Are you with me? Yeah. So we don't end up with this kind of diversity if we kind of believe one way is this way, this way, it's all good. No, it doesn't happen unless this is the way. So while we are very much tolerant, tolerant of ideas, or tolerant of, of thoughts, again, how we live it, well, okay. So diversity comes about in a great way, but the truth is Christianity, lost my place here, truth is in Christianity, Christians are the most tolerant of enemies. We're the most tolerant people in the world. Not only that, we, we're commanded to love our enemies. What other group does that? So we are so far above the put up and shut up, kind of like, hey, just say what you gotta say and move on. You know, growing up in Virginia Beach, the military was all around. And I was, I thought I was Mr. Tolerant. 
like, oh yeah, so much diversity in the military, so many friends coming in now, I'm Mr. Tolerant. But the truth is, before I was a disciple, I never had anybody that didn't look like me in my house. Ever. And I went to school thinking I was Mr. Tolerant, thinking I knew folks, but I never had anybody that wasn't like me in my house. Never had a sleepover with anybody that wasn't the same color as me. I didn't have this in my mind, like, oh, I don't want to have them, but that's my life. And it was normal. And it wasn't until I became a Christian where not only the diversity was a part of my life, but I started to see the preconceived notions. I started to see the, the ways I responded when I was in certain situations. When I would sing certain songs and sing certain songs about different subcultures, and I'd kind of share those lyrics, and I'd be like, ooh, who am I to, what in the, it, it just kind of, everything changed. You know, we were having a joke, Cliff and I, you know, Virginia Beach, I remember kind of looking at certain areas and saying, that's the ghetto. Like, man, that's not the ghetto. But who am I to, it just put me in this position where like, a not healthy way to view the world. And I started to deal with those things when I became a Christian, but before that I was thinking, you know what, I'm good. This cornerstone in Christ uprooted everything, not just what I did, but how I thought of the world. You know, Gandhi walked away from South Africa saddened by what Christianity had done there. He said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christianity. And the truth is, our Fellowship of Churches was the first church after apartheid with blacks and whites worshiping together. First church. In this absolute segregation, church was the first one to bring blacks and whites together to worship. It wasn't like, let's just squeeze and make this happen. It was a real decision on who Christ is and recognizing what he's done and rearranged in our lives. So that's the dangers of religion. There's so much there. I've got two more pages. i got to stop. <laughs> i got to stop. It's 11.47. I love you. I'll, I'll share it on Wednesday. Um, amen. There's a lot here. I was excited. I practiced it in my office, and I did 27 minutes. I must have been talking like stinking Roadrunner or something. I don't know. But anyway, I got more where that came from. We'll have part two on Wednesday where it talks about, again, this idea of boldly knowing and boldly going. Those are the next two points on the next two pages, but we're not, we're not going there. Uh, the important note is, is that we've got a way. It's not our way. And we can recognize that and recognize the opportunities we have to bring it our way. But what, what we can do, and I'm kind of twisting this all up just to wrap, put a bow on it, is kind of think of the ways and be aware of how you're being squeezed into the mold to think differently than the Jesus that we follow. One of the ways we kind of shirk out and try to maybe soften the blow, 50% today, in our lives, recognize where we've gone silent, where maybe we should speak up. Recognize the thoughts that we've embraced to kind of soften the blow that what is truth and who is Jesus and maybe recreate a Jesus that doesn't exist in our lives. So that's my hope. That's my practical for us this, this morning on a whim to, uh, to think about that, to let that resonate, uh, resonate in us. And then when we come back to Wednesday, we can be launched to boldly know and boldly go. Amen.